Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day and welcome to an extra nerdy edition of Thrash and Treasure, the Torture Chamber Musical Comedy Podcast, where Pee Wee rode kilometres away before realising his bike was stolen. And speaking of roadkill, I'm Aaron, and I'm joined as unusual by my arch nemesis, my direct competition, the good guy to my evil bitch, because he's stepping in at the last minute like any superhero would. Musical theatre radio fans know him as writer, director, actor, and host. It's John Paul Yovanov. <laughs> that was a bit too excited, though, for a co-host. <laughs> so harsh. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I know you have wanted to get an invite for a long time. <laughs> Sure. And, and Aaron, thank you so much. I love being your seventh or eighth choice. And no, no. It's an honor. No, 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 no. For <laughs> listeners at home, this was a short term <laughs> booking workers. The guests we've got today, we've been um, you know, waiting for, for quite a while. As I've said a long time, we're willing to wait for the best of the best guests that we can. And then when this was booked, I said to my co-host, okay, so who's available at this time and who doesn't know chess and Iron Maiden? And everybody was booked up out of all three co-hosts. I'm holding up four fingers out of all three. So just by luck. So I messaged two people. One of them was JP and the other one was actually past guest Craig, because I know he loved his experience on the show and he wants to come back anyways. And you answered first, you took the alternate cheerleader chair. So thank you so much for stepping in at the very, very last minute. You know, chess, you didn't know this album, metal album. So I do know chess. Yes, I do. Not just the game. Not just the game. Oh, as I said in your introduction, JP, you are my arch nemesis because you do run yes. another theatre podcast on another network, which is your own network. So this is like Warner Brothers and Disney coming together right now on this show, battling it out with musical theatre and heavy metal. So would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about MTR Radio? I did it again. It's like saying fucking ATM machine. Yep. It's MT Radio or musical theatre radio or just MTR, yep. which your podcast is be our guest. So anyways, I'll let you. Sure. Why not? I'm, I'm here. I might as well talk about myself for a little bit. Uh, musical theater radio is my internet radio station um, where we play show tunes from around the world, old, new, popular, and rare with a mandate to help promote new creators and their works. Now, unfortunately for all your listeners in Australia, we don't have music licensing for there. It's very expensive. You guys are expensive. Let me just tell you. That's racist. But you're not as expensive as Finland. So there's that. Oh. Um, I can be heard in the US, the UK, and Canada, but I also have a podcast. Yes, I am your arch nemesis in that regard. Be our guest. It's as simple as that. I don't have any metal talk on it, but uh, we do like to talk to, uh, you know, a little bit of everything. New creators, accountants, publicists, a little bit of everything for everybody. Yeah, even village idiots like me got an invite onto your show. <laughs> even village idiots like you, yes. Let's just tell our listeners how low the bar is over there. No, that's all, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. You know what? We're in Canada. I'll apologize for you saying that. Yes, that's it. Now, and also you're a writer and director and composer. I am. Yeah, a little bit of everything. I'm a jack of all trades, writer, producer, director, not choreographer, a little bit of everything. A jack of all trades, a master of none. Yeah, I'm still better than most people. So... <laughs> 
and humble too. Well, yeah, obviously. I'm Canadian, but I'm not that Canadian. <laughs> I'm not apologizing for that. I, I, I realized that I can't say Canadian without saying it like a Canadian says Canadian. How do I, how do I say Canadian? Canadian. Well, maybe it's just me. No, it's all Canadians. Is it? Oh. Yeah, there's a, an old couple that live around the corner. They moved over here in their retirement. <laughs> I always see the lady walking her dog. I've been seeing her for like 15 years. I haven't seen her in a while, actually. Maybe she's dead. Well, I hope not. Well, you know, that happens. It's called life. Yeah, well, it's called death but you know <laughs> well, okay yeah I, you're a writer director what what have you done like tell us a bit about some of the shows you've created sure I'm trying to sell you jp trying to whore you out <laughs> i've written my own show uh many moons ago called paradise island about a guy who goes down to a tropical island because he's sick and tired of his life and his misadventures over 24 hours it is a musical comedy at its comediest so it is funny. I work at a theater company called Vanier College Productions at York University. I am an associate producer there. We just finished a season, first one back live since uh, the pandemic, which was fantastic. I directed a, a world premiere of a new musical called For Show. Uh, gave an opportunity to a couple of writers who just graduated from Tisch, uh, NYU's Tisch writing program. Oh, that's the one with the teacher or the, the dean that did the dancing on the YouTube when everyone was complaining about their fees. And she's like, oh, I'm just going to dance. <laughs> what a bitch. I loved it. I think that might have been a lucid dream you had. <laughs> no, that was Tish. That was the dean of Tish. You can look it up. People complained about COVID and their fees and they weren't going to school. And what about our fees? And all she could do was post a video of her dancing to a song. Look it up. Um, it is wonderful. As a side note, she just died. Oh, did she? Yes, in November. <laughs> it's the same person. What? I need to look this up. <laughs> Sorry, I just got so excited. That's the voice I use for my dog. <laughs> Probably shouldn't put this in the, the show. But um, yeah, <laughs> if it's the same person, she died in November. <laughs> yeah, R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which is funny because we actually talk about that song in the episode I'm about to post. The school's dean, but it doesn't say who she is. The school's? It might not be the program's dean. Like the program, the head of the program died. Not, I don't know if it's the dean of NYU. Oh, uh, no, you're thinking of Dean Oppenheim? No, that's the bomb person. Oh, no, that was 2009. He wasn't <laughs> a bomb person. What are you talking about? Oppenheimer. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, yeah, that's like years ago. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. This, you can see it online. I'm just trying to find her name so I can find it if she's the one that died. Alison Green. Okay. Is she still alive? Oh, she's, she's listed as a choreographer. Uh, yes, anyway, so guess what? No. We have a legendary Asgardian diva in the studio today. So roll out the gold carpet while I hammer it home how this hero is heralded as king of the super nerds, especially after his explosive entry into entertainment via an event horizon, which had his eyes on dozens of episodes of the extraterrestrial hit series Andromeda and launched this lovable legend into the twilight zone for a stint that left him on the fringe. Ooh, Joshua Jackson, call me. Not to forget his <laughs> journey as a journo, where this good sport illustrated Entertainment Weekly before winding up with writer Ashley Edward Miller, with whom this wonderful wordsmith whipped open a wormhole that welcomed a robot or two into the writer's room with the wonderful Terminator, the Sarah Connor Chronicles, which helped this icon to strike lightning as he raced over to the CW in a flash for the flash, 
So please help me flash a huge Aussie g'day and a oi, give me your lunch money to this android author and puppy papa who gave us pause to think with X-Men's first class, worked K9 to 5 for Agent Cody Banks and tossed a bone into the rim of the wall that came out wrong. And that's what she said as we welcome to the torture chamber a royal son of Odin who defrosted and thawed the Bifrost for Thor Chris Hemsworth, also call me, and lucky for me, we get to welcome to Jurassic Park this delectable dinosaur doctor who devilishly delivered the Velociraptor to the universe of Universal's universally beloved Jurassic franchise when he put the creator in Camp Cretaceous. Shut up, that worked. So before we go extinct, please put your claws together with force and roar like a tyrannosaur for the awesome writer, journalist, producer, and teacher, because it's the one and only Mr. Zach Sands. Yay! Welcome to the torture chamber. Mm. How are you going, finally? That has to be the uh, best introduction I've ever gotten. You need to be my hype man from now on. Please hire me. Please hire me. And any conventions or anywhere out there you want to hire me, you got my email. I'll give you my fee. Anyways, thank you so much for enjoying it. <laughs> I was worried. Delightful to be here. And I have my The Lost World Jurassic Park poster on my wall. I have my Jurassic Park t-shirt on. And I have my Loki mug, which I ruined in the dishwasher when the gold logo came off on Christmas morning when I first got it. I'll take your word for it. I did that with my uh, my daughter's uh, Adventure Time glasses, and she may forgive me someday. Oh, no. Yeah, it's easy. you got to read the instructions, kids. But anyway. <laughs> How are you going? Thank you so much for, for taking the time. I know you are remarkably busy. <laughs> it's my pleasure to be here. And you, you're the one that got up early in the morning. So, uh, so I feel like I have gotten the better part of the deal so far. No, no, no. JP and I do coffee all the time, and it's usually around 12, 1 a.m. That's sort of mid-afternoon for me. This is my evening, so I'm, I'm wide awake. Like I'll be in bed in three or four hours and sleep the day away. Gotcha. Gotcha. How are your puppies? Oh, <laughs> they're all uh, resting, uh, resting in the next room. I took them out on a, uh, let's see, you use kilometers in Australia, right? Yes. Uh, eight or nine kilometer hike, uh, hike in the mountains yesterday. So they're, uh, they're sleeping it off today. Yeah, awesome. I'm sleeping it off, thinking about walking that far. But anyways, now, admittedly, I haven't actually seen the final season of Camp Cretaceous yet, because I haven't renewed my Netflix in a while. I can only afford 17 streaming bloody services at any given time. And I think I'm paying for 24 at the moment. So please, no spoilers for that. Quite all right. Yep. Uh, but how many years, because I know I can tell you how many years I have, 30 exactly. How many years have you longed to sink your teeth into something Jurassic? Oh my goodness. Since I read the Michael Crichton novel when it when it first came out, I've wanted to do that for, uh, for ages, frankly. And uh as a career highlight, having my name in the credits in that Jurassic font in between Steven Spielberg and Michael Crichton. Stop. No, you're giving me goosebumps. <laughs> you know, put that up on mom's refrigerator. Yep. I, I get that. Like, I, I know what that's like to, for so many years to think you're never going to be a part of that franchise. Yeah. And suddenly you are. Yeah, the analogy I always use is uh, it's being a part of a franchise that you love, a long running franchise that you the, that you love is like being a stonemason on one of those Gothic cathedrals. You know, you you look at it 
and you know that it's it's something beautiful and you know you didn't do the whole thing but you can point towards a little section of it and say yeah that was that part was me and i'm i'm a little part of something wonderful that's mm-hmm. it and actually i really did enjoy well what i've seen so far i was really enjoying it because it didn't do what willow did servicing the movie you went on your own tangent the story went on its own. We created our own characters. I wish you had have killed one of them off by now. As I say, I haven't seen the final season, so maybe one of them does. But that's just because I think kids need to toughen up and, you know, Bambi's mum died. Think of it. How much tougher are we all today for it? You know, we, we grew up with so many of these characters or well, their parents getting killed off and stuff like that. It is time we toughen up. Even Buffy died two or three times. Harry Potter technically died at the end of those novels and chose to come back alive. So... But he, he got better. Well, that's it. Uh, but anyways, okay, so if wishes were dinosaurs, we would all get eaten. So which dino would you want to be gobbled up by? You know, I have to go with the classic T-Rex, the one that we all grow up with. I feel like it would be pretty quick as well, whereas raptors seem like they might play with their food. So I would go with quick death at the teeth and claws of a classic. Hollywood, please put me in a Jurassic Park film so I can get eaten by a dinosaur one day. One thing, now JP, what dinosaur would you want to be eaten by? See, I'm going to take a different approach. I want to be eaten by a brontosaurus because I know they're vegetarian. So if I got eaten, nobody's going to forget me. I'm the only guy who's ever been eaten by a vegetarian. Yeah. So I'm going with brontosaurus. I know it's inaccurate, but I'm going with it. Yeah, it's going to take a long time because they didn't have teeth. (laughs) I didn't say it would be enjoyable. No, it would like crush you. You'd be crushed. You wouldn't be eaten. You'd be crushed. Yeah. And you'd be crushed further as you go down the neck as the neck muscles. Don't ask me how I know this shit. I would actually want to be eaten by a flying dinosaur because take me for a bloody flight first. Like what more could you ask for? Seriously, as a huge Jurassic Park fan. So yes, please give me that. Fly me across the landscape and then feed me to your babies. That's what I want. So a flying dinosaur. I don't care which, which time. That's reasonable. That's reasonable. That's it. Uh, now, just one last question. I'm going to make sure I throw this in here. Are you sick of Aussies rocking up to auditions yet? No, not at all. Our joke is that uh, America has stopped kind of producing leading men, so we have to import them from Australia and Ireland now. Yep. I feel like there's a breeding facility out, you know, out in the outback where you just grow Hemsworth for us. Yeah, there is. I've been there. You're not allowed to take photos, but... We grow them out in BC. Do you? Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. And Joshua Jackson. Yep. (laughs) Anyways, we'll move on to the musical now, because we're going to do chess. So before we discuss that, I'm going to read my review, which I apologize if it doesn't make sense. I usually write it in one sitting. This time I didn't. I wrote it in two. Yeah, this is a very historical show. Tim Rice, Benny and Bjorn from ABBA, which I guess technically is Babu. Yeah, Such a dad joke. Uh, Anyways, when I was first given chess, I had to wonder, why'd you have to do this to me? I've never played a game of it, let alone listen to this musical. If only because I know it's a massively popular show that seems to only be done in concert form these days, and we all know how I feel about concert versions. So, like a queen, I unfolded Spotify and whipped out the pawn. Oh, ew, wait, no. I polished off the bishop. Oh, shit, no, that's worse. Anyways, it appears we have this strange mix of light, airy, classical with a slick 80s rock flavor that both established themselves in Murano. With crushing symbols, we're introduced to the high-octane world of nerd sports, overseen by the Arbiter, fresh from Miami Vice, whose eponymous song is sleazy, but also very wordy in parts. 
and although it's sleazy, it's also catchy, like herpes, as well as educational with the rules of chess. Anyways, we meet the players, Freddy and Anatomy, as well as their lovers, Florence and Svetlana, and follow their love quadrangle, also known as a square, set against a tense political backdrop. And I would go on and on and on with a slow, boring play-by-play, but that would be the game chess, or Musical Theatre Radio's Be Our Guest. Ooh, sick burn me. (laughs) That's JP's show, by the way. Anyways, I couldn't tell you the story, but I did much prefer the more pop-infused 80s moments more than I did the balladry, and often had the urge to put on a leotard headband and leg warmers to tighten up my glutes to the more upbeat tracks. So after 20 or so listens, was I won over by the drama, passion, and romance? If you replace the romance with sleaze, then yes, but I'd need a fully realized production and not just a bunch of queens standing on the spot. So as an album, three and a half stars. Lyrically, it was sometimes too verbose in parts and musically too slow in others, but together it makes for a fascinating and unique, even exciting experience, unlike the game, which inspired it. Ooh, sick burn me. But I've since had thoughts. This needs to be a country rock musical. A country rock musical. Yes, The Deal. Listen to that again. That's a country song. Now, take that concept and stretch that out over the whole show. You've got the black and the white of... Oh, okay, I'll say that and people think I'm talking about races. I'm talking about chess, the two sides. The good cowboy and you've got the evil cowboy. You've got the Americans and the Russians. Why not? This, This is a country musical. I'm sorry. Here's my trivia question for you. Yep. Do you know the connection between the chess musical and Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Yes, Murray Head, Anthony Stewart Head. Ah, you knew that. (laughs) I knew that anyways. I didn't know this show apart from one snippet of a commercial from 1997 when it played here with Daryl Braithwaite. That's all I've ever known of chess. I didn't know One Night in Bangkok. I didn't know any of that. I knew the character names and I know it's a Natalie. Wait, One Night in Bangkok wasn't a big hit in uh, Australia? Maybe, but I missed it. Before your time? Just some things I missed. This had been done, as I say, 97, but failed. So I never saw it then. And it's since been done a couple of times, amateur or professionally, in a concert version, which I'm not interested in seeing a concert. If I want to go to a concert, I'll see a concert. If I want a symphony concert, I'll see that. If I want to see theatre, I'm going to see theatre. I hate this cheap concert because the ticket prices are the same. Why are you charging me $150 for no costume, no sets, the band taking up half the stage or the orchestra? So anyways, didn't know anything. And it was a very interesting time listening to this because, as I say, it's so unbalanced in a lot of ways. But if you turn it into a country musical, that'll fix it. Don't you think in the wake of the huge international success of the Queen's Gambit, you know, which kind of mixed chess and Cold War and uh, romance together, that this is primed for a comeback? I haven't seen it. I believe it is getting a comeback in Broadway. Yeah. There's talks of a revival. Yeah. Well, but also a lot of things are supposed to be coming back, but COVID threw a spanner in that works, didn't it? Yeah. Because everything's gotten pushed back and will things happen? And, you know, I didn't watch the Queen's Gambit. I was more of a character study than uh, thrilling uh, blow by blow of uh, chess strategy. And (laughs) Anya Taylor Joy is pretty terrific. Yes. I actually watched The Menu again yesterday. She is wonderful and and I I can't wait to see her career blossom. And also, someone else you've worked with, Jenna Ortega. Her in Five Cream, as we call it, she was fantastic. I loved her. She was the best part of that. Yeah. 
No, she's she's a you know she she's a superstar now. That's where I sort of first noticed her, and I didn't realize that I'd been hearing her in Camp Cretaceous. I mean, anyways, that's about chess. Now, JP, you've done this, I believe. Mm-hmm. Who did you play? I played Anatoly. I played the Russian. So I yeah, stage production and amateur production. Oh, Anatoly. What did I call him? Yes, Anatoly. Uh, yeah, that's why I was confused. I was like, have they added another character to the show? This mo- so. Yeah, well, this morning I was talking about Night um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Twice I said Nightmare Before Christmas. So, <laughs> difference is someone who's actually uh, who's been in in the musical. What what are your thoughts about it? I love that show. The, as you probably did, Zach, One Night in Bangkok back in '84 when it came out, and loved that song. And I didn't know it was from a musical. I don't know if you did at that point i didn't and it's hilarious that it was a huge hit given that when you listen to the lyrics the lyrics are very clearly referring to events in the musical that hadn't even come out yet when this when the song was released yeah and i used to i don't know how old was i at that point 84 i was like 11 and quoting things like massage parlors and the queens we use would not excite you <laughs> not having a clue what any of that meant <laughs> but loving it nonetheless i was very disappointed when uh, when they did the wedding Westworld remake and they didn't uh, have the uh, tagline for the for the show, you know, be a show with everything but Yul Brynner. <laughs> yes, that would be awesome. Right. I, and I love Tim Rice. It's, it's my favorite lyricist. So everything about that show, I enjoy. A few of these songs were actually turned into singles and there are video clips. There's one of them to Nobody's Side where Elaine Page is standing there sort of just going like this. Like she's playing drums that aren't there. And I just, I, every time I watch it, I think it's the funniest thing because why is she doing this? It's so 80s. Uh, the Arbiter was turned into a video clip. I know him so well. And I think Heaven Help My Heart was as well. So these songs individually were massive hits. There was just a disconnect, I think, when it was released on the West End or when it premiered on the West End. And then on Broadway, it was rewritten. I think it was a little late too. Like it, it, the timing of, for, for making it to Broadway wasn't great. It was such a Cold War thing. By the time it came to Broadway, we were in the middle of Perestroika. It's like, wait, we like the Russians now. You know, <laughs> yes, there was a time. Uh, <laughs> a, very, a very brief little window there. Uh, <laughs> so, I think it was kind of a victim of uh, geopolitical timing. But yeah, the music is certainly enduring. Uh, You know, like I I think several of those songs from it are pretty canonical. Yeah. It blows my mind how I haven't heard them in a commercial, in a movie, or a needle drop somewhere. Surely I would have. No, One Night in Bangkok is totally new. The Hangover 2? No, I didn't like The Hangover 1, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, at the end of The Hangover 2, Mike Tyson comes out and uh, sings One Night in Bangkok on karaoke. You didn't miss miss a lot, but other than Mike Tyson singing (laughs) One Night in Bangkok. If I knew that, I would have watched that on YouTube, because surely that's been plagiarized i'm sure no look i enjoyed it but i can hear where the disconnect may have been in terms of the music it's very of its era that that mix of uh you know kind of straight up rock songs with very kind of classical broadway composition and kind of ping-ponging back and forth between them but it's also the combination of tim rice and uh and the two abba guys works way better than it has any right to he he might even be better with them than uh, andrew lloyd weber but i was gonna say chess is actually the best show to be in concert because the book has problems and they tried to rewrite it and they still had problems so putting those great songs in concert 
is actually probably the best way to do this show. Yeah, no, I've, I've seen the show and you're right. The show, you know, is kind of dramatically inert in a couple of places, but the songs are toe tappers. Everything on that, on either the Broadway or the London or the Josh Groban concert version. You gotta love them all. Yeah. The Grobes. Oh, goodness gracious me. I'm just <laughs> looking for my segue. Um, uh, anyways, we'll go to no break. It looks like that was a checkmate. It's about time I got paid. So we're gonna go to an ad break. I don't know why I wrote it. Oh, yeah, check. Hey there. It's time to get popped on culture, the official Puzzle Hub pop quiz podcast. And welcome to game number five. I'm your new host, Matt Young. And for today's special theme, we're going to test your knowledge on musical groups, including bands, boy bands, girl groups, and vocal ensembles. Play against your friends or the clock and see how you go. All right, let's get into it, shall we? Game one, songs in the key of words. I'm gonna give you three key words that appear within eight different songs. Pretty simple. If you guess the song correctly on the first keyword, give yourself three points. If you guess it on the second, give yourself two points, which of course means give yourself one for guessing it on the third and final keyword. So let's see how you go. Ready? First clue, fantasy. Landslide. Reality. That was Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Second clue. Lights. Carry. Home. Of course, that's all the small things by Blink-182. Next up, Valentino. Crystal. Italian. That's right, it was Manic Monday by The Bangles. I was kissing Valentino by a crystal blue Italian stream. Alrighty, fourth, picked, bunch, glance. I Want You Back by The Jackson Five. How are you going so far? Next up, Lady, Glitters, Buying. A Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin. Lonely, Gazing, Window. That one was a little bit hard for me, but that was Waterfalls by TLC. Here's our seventh clue. Walked, Smile, Cool. Of course, that was Stop by Spice Girls. And lastly, honey, bees, envy. My girl by the temptations. And time's up. So until the next game, I've been Matt. You've been popped on culture. And I shall see you next time. See ya. Anyways, you're listening to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That is MTR host, John Paul Yovanov. And we are joined by Hollywood screenwriter and king of the nerds, Zach Stentz. I am saying that correctly, yes? Stentz. Yes, you are. Yes. That's all right then. We, we have had to clarify some people. I wasn't sure if it was like Polish or something and, and the TZ might have a, a ch sound to it or... It's German. Uh, it's, oh, German. Yep. So if you pronounce it the German way, it would technically be Stentz, but, uh, you know, no one does that in the in the US. <laughs> 
Anyways, we're going to move on because we're going to move on to the metal now. Have you had much experience with metal, heavy metal, glam? I actually spent uh, most of my teenage years resisting the allure of metal because I associated it with the uh, kids who like to beat me up in high school. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> oh, no. I, you're like the 10th guest I've triggered. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I was all I was all about Bowie. I was all about alt rock. I was all about those things. And yeah. only as an adult did I kind of come back to it and realize like okay objectively speaking this is great stuff so you know like we, we have a satellite radio station or sat satellite radio service here, Sirius XM. And one of the station I find myself listening to the most is Ozzy's Boneyard, which is, you know, which is all like classic metal from the, uh, from the eighties. Like it's wonderful because it's not overplayed for me. It's like, you know, it, it's new to me. So I'm just really enjoying it, particularly, uh, you know, Iron Maiden and, uh, you know, Judas Priest and, uh, you know, Ronnie James Dio. Those are kind of my triumvirate right now. If you could put anything, and I mean anything, I don't want serious, sensible. I want crazy, over the top. What would you put on your rock star rider? On my rock star rider, wow, it would yep. not be brown M and M's. It would probably be, you know, like served champagne by a dwarf or something. Wow, yeah, politically incorrect, but yes, I was expecting puppies actually, or something to do with puppies for some reason. <laughs> the guest this morning said a hundred virgins, so I made a joke about it. It's going to be male, female, <laughs> and non-binary virgins. We have about a hundred incels. <laughs> you get a hundred virgins, but they're all incredibly hostile. Oh, shit. I, I wish I had have thought of that at the time. <laughs> uh, anyways, we'll move on. Uh, no, JP, I want to know what's in yours because I've never asked you this. What would be in your Rockstar Rider? I, I, and will it include puppies? <laughs> uh, I, I honestly have never thought about it because, you know... Uh, yeah, I'll never be that good to require a rider. That's not what the question was for crying <laughs> out loud. We want, you know, we want water thrown to you from the Queen of England from a fucking plane or something. That's what we want. Anyway, sorry, not to criticize. Which Queen of England? Camilla? Oh, sure. that was then, wasn't it? Sorry. <laughs> yes. I put my foot down a long time ago about bottled water, so we haven't actually had it as okay. an answer in a long while. Yes, Camilla. I got nothing. You got nothing. I got nothing. All right, well, let's move on then, because yeah. <laughs> uh, Zach, you chose the metal album as well this week. You chose Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind. Yeah, it, it's a pun because it's P-I-E-C-E -E rather than P-E-A-C-E. -E. Oh, I didn't pick up. I should have picked up on that. Peace of mind. Oh, God, I don't notice anything crying out loud. <laughs> oh, my God, fathers. Like, things will be right in front of my face, and I just didn't notice it. Um, Yeah, I get it now. Oh, look, I got it all along. I'll edit it. Make myself look good. <laughs> JP, let's move on very, very quickly. All right. Yeah, you reviewed. So, I got to listen to Iron Maiden's Peace of Mind from 1983. I guess we'll start with the first song on the album, Where Eagles Dare. It's an okay song, but uh, it didn't inspire me to listen to the rest of the album you know it didn't have that hook for the first song but i'm thinking like an old man all you youngins and your spotify's where order doesn't matter probably don't care as much because you just jump from song to song anyways you don't listen to the whole album it's it's one hit tiktok wonders with you see i'm old school iron maiden needs to be lit, played on a crank that volume up to 11 hi-fi system that would have rocked your balls off in the summer of 77 now 
The second song, Revelations, had that driving hook to start the song. This is what should have opened the album. And then it got softer, ballady start. But uh, then it got driving again and ebb and flow of the sound. And I really liked this song. Next, we delve into some Greek mythology with Flight of Icarus. Didn't blow me away, but a good song nonetheless. Uh, it was the first release from the album and it did pretty good, peaking at number three in the UK. Now, Die With Your Boots On is track number four on the album. And it's okay. Didn't hate it. Didn't love it. Eh, it's okay. Just to let you know. So if you're listening, just to let you know. So because I listened on Spotify, it just went to the next song. But in 1983, we would have had to get up, disrupt that cloud of smoke that may or may not be lingering in the air because you forgot to crack the window that you hope dissipates before your parents get home from their weekly Saturday trip to Sears and flip that album over. So we kick off side two with The Trooper. Now, I don't know if they're singing about American State Troopers, the Canadian band trooper who sang Raise a Little Hell or something else, because honestly, I didn't understand most of the words he's singing. But that holds true of pretty much every song in the album, but not because he mumbles or anything like that. It's because uh, I'm not hearing this with 16-year-old ears covered in oversized headphones with that 20-foot long curly cord so you could lie on your bed, close your eyes, and zone out in the rocking sound. But because I'm old and the volume of a Michael Bolton album, I find almost too much now i love the beginning of the track of number six still life because in 1983 it's the song that would have gave every evangelical preacher a little tingle in their nether regions because it starts out with a hidden message that could only be understood by playing it backwards and and that is the shitty thing about spotify i could not play the song backwards but if i was playing it on a late 20th century turntable i'd be able to understand what these devil summoning words are of course, I do have the internet and Google, so I found out that the Beelzebub summoning sentence was, What ho said the ting with the three bonts, don't meddle with things you don't understand, and he burped. What the hell that means? I don't know. It could be used to summon Satan, but I'm guessing it does not. Now, the real reason they did this was the band was tired of being labeled as devil worshippers. Good on you, Iron Man. And it's a great song, too. I had two problems with the next track, Quest for Fire. Uh, first, this should have been used as a film soundtrack. This would have totally kicked ass. Second, I'm a man of science. The world's not flat. We went to the moon and Sir Isaac Newton had very little, if nothing, to do with cookies. But when the first line of a song is, in a time when dinosaurs uh, walk the earth, and then two lines later, it says, in an age where prized possessions was fire to search for landscapes, men would roam. I have to put my foot down and call them out on it because if I learned anything from Ross's endless speeches about dinosaurs on the TV show Friends, I learned that dinosaurs and humans do not share the same timeline on this planet. But outside of the inaccuracies of the scientific bungle, uh, the song's okay. I don't mind it. Now with track eight, we are back to this rock and roll, baby. A driving beat that's about a teenage fighter slash murderer. And this song is good. I really love this song. It's probably my favorite from the album. And finally, we come to the last song in this metal roller coaster of an album, To Tame a Land. A seven and a half minute epic that starts out slow, but you can feel the song wanting to just go like a thoroughbred pulling at its reins. And then it lets loose and starts to build speed driving force unleashing the metaphorical wind through your long rock and roll hair as you see the song's destination rising over the auditory horizon and as you get closer you slow down and realize this is the end of not only the song but the entire album and damn it's a good song i totally recommend this album unless 
you like science, then you're going to get pissed off with at least one of the songs. Uh, out of five? Oh, I'd, I'd give it a solid 3.25. Okay, that's very specific. Awesome. <laughs> I didn't pick up on that dinosaurs reference. Yeah. Do you know what the original title of Tama Land was? No. It was originally going to be titled Dune because it was like most of the uh, tracks, it was inspired by what the band was reading at the time. And the, really? the song was inspired by Dune. And then Frank, they, they asked Frank Herbert for, for uh, permission and uh, they got back from his agents. Frank doesn't like rock bands and he especially doesn't like heavy rock bands. So they, they had to, it, it's still, if you listen to the lyrics, it's still very much about the book, but had to, uh, they had to change the title to not uh, bring down the wrath of Frank. Well, last year on a first date, I was taken to see, was it last year or the year before? I don't even remember now. It was that long ago? Cause the movie was four fucking hours long. I was taken on a first date to see Dune part one. That is not a first date movie. There was never a second date. You can imagine why. Anyways, we'll move on very quickly. I just wanted to throw that in there because, one, how do you not like rock bands for crying out loud? Goodness gracious me. You think the Kinks? It was of a different generation. Manfred Mann. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know, but still. Anyways. um, Okay, yeah, no, I didn't pick up on the dinosaur thing. Now, those Satan words were actually... A that was one of I think one of the um, band members intimid oh intimidating impersonating a Caucasian journalist who quoted an African writer or some or philosopher or somebody like that who was Idi Amin. That's it. So I don't know if that's cultural reappropriation of then you quoting him in your Canadian accent, JP. Uh, I think we got to pass because I'm Canadian. We we get away with a lot. Yep. <laughs> it's hard to hate us. But that's why I think it didn't make sense because it was said in an accent. Uh, and it was just nonsense, you know. Yeah. All that. Um, I liked The Trooper. I didn't mind Still Life. I thought that was good. The Trooper's a terrific song. It has that kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's based on the, uh, the poem, The Charge of the Light Brigade, you know, which is about, uh, you know, a bunch of horsemen charging a Russian position in the Crimean War. And you listen to it and it has, it sounds like it's galloping, you know, that, 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 that like, it literally sounds like horses galloping. And um, the song has gotten new popularity as a, uh, I, I guess, uh, Ukrainians really like it because it's all about, you know, fighting the Russians. You can go on YouTube and see the very good actress Vera Farmer singing a pretty badass cover of it is that i thought it was familiar i thought it was an italian for family oh you don't know oh i thought okay i'm sorry i I thought you had said it correctly (laughs) from now on i'm not listening to anyone else's i think i said it right a friend of mine is married to her little sister so well then okay then i'm listening to you and, (laughs) and if i get told i'm wrong i'm blaming you for it (laughs) It's it's all good. You know, I have to say I have a soft spot for rock songs that are basically plot summaries of of the rock singer's favorite movies, like (laughs) Where Eagles Dare. It is literally just a plot summary of of the uh, Richard Burton uh, Clint Eastwood movie where they, you know, shoot like 200 Nazis. Everything is lost on me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think a really interesting thing about uh, about Iron Maiden as a band is that like a lot of those bands, they started sounding very kind of slow and heavy like uh, Black Sabbath, but they're probably the, uh, the metal band that's most influenced by punk and what was going on in punk at the time. There are little sections where they almost sound like the Ramones in places, which is, uh, w- which is unusual given that at the time metal was over here and punk was over there yeah i was gonna say listening to this album it doesn't 
have that metal feel it, it's it's obviously hard rock at least but i because metal goes in so many different ways that it yeah it has that black sabbath and and uk feel to it it's versatile like its namesake because yeah. there, there is like even i mentioned before david bowie that's glam that's glam rock that's that qualifies under metal if you I will i was gonna say big sections of uh some of his early albums like the man who sold the world sound like you know led zeppelin with artier lyrics yeah yeah, I, I, well, we, we'll need to do Led Zeppelin again for me too. Truly appreciate it. We did an album with Stairway to Heaven and I just wasn't there for it. Well, the nice thing about Stairway to Heaven is that it can start, you can leave the room, maybe get a snack, <laughs> use yes. the bathroom, then you come back and it'll still be on. You haven't missed it. <laughs> oh, we'll move on anyways. It looks like the Iron Maiden found herself an Iron Man. So we're going to go to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. After barely three hours of light sleep, Toniston Turnbull slowly opens his eyes, his body feeling heavier than it ever has before. Not from extra weight, from tiredness and stress. Polly sighs in the shadows behind him, the flame of the nearest barbed wire tiki torch tower having died down, but not out, while Toniston napped. Are you awake? Toniston whispers. How can I sleep in this place? Polly moans, turning onto her side and facing Toniston, who stays on his back, imagining obscure animal-esque shapes in the rusted tin roof above them, shadows faintly formed by the nearest dying torches. We need to work out a way to get out of here, Toniston states the obvious. He whispers, despite the fact the nearest shacks to their own are several metres away, and the occupants presumably asleep, as most prisoners seem to be. How? There's no fence to squeeze through, or even climb, Polly replies, sitting up in bed and then stretching out her sore arms. The hairs stand on end from the slight chill in the air. I don't know, but I think the whole fighting thing is a distraction. You mean, to distract the other prisoners when new ones arrive? No, I I think that was just bad timing. Didn't you notice? Toniston goes on to explain his theory. That fight happened, everybody gathered around. I didn't see one person who wasn't watching. And then when I vomited, the only gate in this place closed shut. What are you trying to say? I think something happened when everyone's back was turned. Like what? Whispers Polly, her voice breaking up in fear. I don't know. That's what we've got to find out. Toniston's brain starts working overtime, but it's strange that nobody seems to want to leave. They seem almost happy. Definitely content. So, when's the next one of those stupid beatdowns? Toniston can't help but think Polly looks tough, almost evil in the shadows as she asks, I don't know, Toniston begins, but both teenagers are distracted by a crumbling noise in the distance. Hopping out of bed, 
Toniston joins Polly on her own, equally uncomfortable one. Spotting a large, white package hovering close to the cave ceiling, behind it a shadowy figure. The package is lowered down, causing the teenagers themselves to lower as well, hoping not to be spotted by whom, or what, may be operating this obscure crane. Over a long, slow descent, the package is dropped to the ground. Polly keeps her eyes on it, but Toniston looks up immediately, spotting a large black shadow scurry away to God only knows where. Come, he whispers, as he quietly hops off her bed, slipping into his docks with bare feet. Polly follows his lead. Careful to keep watch on all directions, the teenagers swiftly sneak over to the white package, their hearts beating an almost tribal jam in perfect harmony, and stopping in their tracks as the sudden realisation of what lies before them sinks in. A woman, seemingly in her early twenties, wrapped up in bandages from the neck down. No, not bandages. Is that spiderweb? Polly asks, completely mortified at the prospect. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! You're listening to Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron. That's JP Yovanov from MTR, Be Our Guest, or MTR Radio. That's like saying an ATM machine from Musical Theatre Radio. Um, and we'll put the details down below. And we are joined by the science factual, Zach Stance. Now, you have worked on numerous high concept projects. Do you ever get the urge to just write an eight romantic drama that's not like superheroes or action? That's not like big in genre? You know, I love genre, but I, I have some screenplays in my uh, in my desk drawer that are uh, that are much less genre. I have one that I'm very proud of that I wrote with my brother that's essentially a small town murder mystery where the main character is a bartender and a DJ, you know, who plays uh, 80s alt rock records late at night in his small town and becomes convinced that a mixtape left for him by his uh, long disappeared brother is uh, filled with clues as to as to what happened. So I have written and I am writing things that are less overtly genre. But, you know, unfortunately, Hollywood is a place where when you get known for a certain thing, people want you to do more of that. You know, it's more difficult to get them to take seriously something in a another genre, as it were. Yeah. And we would, when I say we were talking about that this morning, or 19 hours ago, I was ranting about that this morning, Andrew Lloyd Webber, actually, in terms of the expectations that he had on his career put on him in the 90s, where everyone was expecting things to sound like Phantom of the Opera or Cats. And so the shows that he kept releasing were under that critique from the audience, from the media, from everybody. Everyone was expecting it. And I don't think it's fair to artists to put that expectations. You should be able to write the genres that you want. Yeah. And I think being creatively adventurous is how you renew yourself as an as an artist and challenging yourself to do new things. I really enjoyed writing for The Flash, for example, but like that's superhero muscle. Like I, I can do that in my sleep. It's not a it's I know where the act outs are. I know what the audience expectations are. You know, so but what's exciting to me is to do something that I've never done before. Peter Farrelly or Bobby Farrelly will come out with the Green Book or something like that and critically acclaimed. And you know, Craig Mazin went from uh, you know, hangover sequels and uh, you know, superhero movie parodies to uh, Chernobyl. 
and now The Last of Us. Yeah. Uh, Wes Craven, look at his career that he had with, he did The People Under the Stairs. He did The Music from the Heart. He did Scream. And whilst they, you know, a few of these are horrors, they're very different from each other. John Carpenter in the middle of all those horror movies had Starman, which is this lovely romantic, uh, you know, kind of romantic science fiction film. Yep. And then like even with comedy actors, Jim Carrey, The Truman Show. But then when you notice when this happens, like people then turn around and go, wow, we didn't know you could do this thing because you didn't give them a chance because you got stuck. It's that thing of Bart Simpson. I didn't do it. We hear something that's funny and popular and we want it done to death. Yeah. That, well, that happens all the time. Musical theater world. Like mm-hmm. on the flash, everybody, all of a sudden there's a musical episode. <laughs> Every, you're like they can sing and dance. Yeah, obviously <laughs> they did stuff before and they've been on stage or they've been in shows. And yeah, I, I'm just surprised. Well, I shouldn't be surprised that people are always surprised that, oh, you can do something different. You can write something different. You have the, you know, you're not just only writing it in this genre or performing in this way. I think you see that a lot when uh, actors and performers switch countries. You know, like Americans just know Hugh Laurie. You know, it's like he's the grumpy doctor who says jerky things, and then you know, like the UK knows him for like, you know, for goofy comedy. Blackadder all the way. <laughs> Dude. And look, Hugh Jackman, why, why isn't he sort of being used as that barometer of let's stop expecting artists to be one freaking thing? Anyways, I, I could rant about this for hours, but I'm not going to. Yeah, I mean, that you know, that he was cast for as Wolverine from from a revival of Oklahoma. Exactly. I saw him in 1996 as Gaston in Beauty and the Beast. Wow. Disney's Beauty and the Beast, the musical. He was fantastic. And then he went on to do Sunset Boulevard. Then he went to London, Oklahoma. And anyways, let's move on. Speaking of Hugh Jackman, how do you define star quality besides me, obviously? It's like the uh, the famous Supreme Court uh, uh, definition of pornography. You can't always define <laughs> it, but you know it when you see it. I'll give you an example. Um, I w- when I was working on X-Men First Class, I was um, our house was under construction. So I was hiding out in a little office next to the executive who it, on, on the Fox lot who was in charge of it. And I was working late at night. The executive knocked on my door and said, hey, you need to come and look at this. This is a chemistry read that we did for uh, you know Magneto and Professor X. The chemistry read was, um, it was James McAvoy, who had already been cast. And it was Michael Fassbender. And Michael Fassbender had just come off of the Freud and Young movie that uh, David Cronenberg did. So he had this big, ridiculous Daniel Plainview looking mustache that was incredibly distracting before he opened his mouth. And the second he opens his mouth, it's like, that guy's a superstar. You need to cast him. He just had that je ne sais quoi star quality to him that was unmistakable. I love asking these questions. I only ever ask producers, directors, and writers this question because, well, I mean, I could ask actors, but you know what they're going to say. They're going to give the answer that I asked in the question. Me. Yeah, it's like, every time I look in the mirror, baby. <laughs> look, there is nothing wrong with ego. I, I say it all the time. People have got to embrace it. They've just got to watch it. That's all. Don't take it too seriously. For sure. That's it. Uh, okay, now, because you've worked on a lot of TV and you've worked with a lot of beloved characters, who has been one character, one beloved character that you have been tempted to kill off but knew the fans would riot so who got a reprieve that is an excellent that is an excellent question thank you because you've been asked a million
million questions, Zach. Do you know how hard this interview was to write? <laughs> I would say, I would say, you know, the big one that we went back and forth on was Loki in the first Thor movie. And it was, but it was a special case because they always knew he was coming back. But the big question was, do we end the, do we end the movie still thinking that he's dead? And then you find out in the next Marvel movie that he's alive, or do you, do you have that? And then the stinger at the end is no, he's still alive. And, uh, but fairly quickly they came down on the, on the, no, we need, we're setting up him as the villain of the Avengers. We need to, we need to see that he's alive. And I resisted that a little bit because it's like the big emotional thing at the end of the movie is Thor makes a terrible choice and sends his beloved brother hurtling off into the abyss so that he won't commit genocide. And that kind of takes it back. <laughs> it kind of takes it back at the end of the at the end of the movie. But uh, I was overruled on that one. That's a very Shakespearean story or film as it is. And especially having Kenneth freaking Branagh directed your screenplays like, holy crap, and now you're on my show. How far we fall. <laughs> no, it's, it, it was a it was a freaky, it was a freaky thing having him essentially you know when we're in rewrites and you're there in the room with him he's like okay let's do this scene i'll be thor and you be jane foster and you know like and so we're we're, we're doing the scene and it's like i'm doing a scene with one of the greatest shakespearean actors of his era and and the the only time it was a problem is that um when ken would as some some even the best directors do sometimes have a not so great idea he could make a bad idea sound good by delivering the line just that well yeah I, look i don't usually ask that question of what was it like working with this person because i think that's so insulting to people however you are a writer and and this was one of the greats directing your work so I'd... what about in tv has there been a character in tv that you have wanted to kill off but everyone said no nah, you can't do that you know, again, in Camp Cretaceous, there was the thought of, are we actually going to kill, you know, like, can we actually kill one of those kids at the end of the first season? And then very quickly, we got back from Netflix, like, this is a kid's show. No, you absolutely can't. Mm. And then we get back. Oh, okay, well, can we at least have the audience think that he's dead for several episodes? And then he comes back in the next season. And then we get back. It's like, now you need to see his hand twitch at the end of the episode so that kids know that he's he's still alive. So so that would be that would be an example of sometimes you have to remember who your audience is and what their expectations are. But it hasn't happened a lot. It's like, you know, I wrote on the flash. It's not like I'm going to kill off the flash. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you could have, but then his future self or his past self. Well, I don't know how his future self could have, but his past self could have come to the future and stopped his own murder. See. DC and Marvel both going in so big on the multiverse to me kind of defangs like you can kill anyone and then just go to another universe and get a slightly different version of them. So it's like it lowers the stakes in my mind. Yeah, I 100% agree. I didn't want Marvel to go down that route at all because I thought he, it's just going to get messy for one thing, like storytelling wise, you know, there's going to be so many threads, but then it just makes it too easy. Makes it too easy. And then, yeah, I don't need Deadpool as part of the MCU. I know we're getting it. I love Deadpool 1 and 2, but I don't need it as part of that. Are you going to be ready for all of the ironic jokes about now being part of Disney in the movie itself? You, you know those are coming, right? I know. It's And the fanboys are going to go crazy for it. I'm going to be sitting there going, I'm so 
bored. Just give me a good story. That's what I want. I want Kevin Feige to not listen to us. Do you think creatives and studios producers need to stop listening to fan demands of what they want from this franchise and that franchise? Oh, absolutely. It is, you know, like if you're a creator, you can't be a stenographer. You can't give people what they're demanding. You have to give them something that they had no idea that they wanted before they saw it. Yes. I've said it before, the Agatha all along serial. I don't need that. That comes from fan reaction. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to love it, but I don't need it. I think Kevin Feige should just follow his instincts like he has all along. Now, anyways, we'll move on. If you could turn any musical into a video game, what would it be? Jesus Christ Superstar. Wow, that'd be fun. And you've got to avoid being crucified. God. Exactly. <laughs> offend so many people. Oh, speaking of offending people, can you do any celebrity impersonations? Uh, <laughs> I will not fire on helpless people. To hell with you. Oh, Arnie. That's my terrible Arnold. <laughs> oh, wonderful. I can do I can do several bad celebrity impressions and no good ones. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that one. I'm like uh, uh, Paul Rudd in, uh, in I Love You, Man. It all ends up sounding like a leprechaun. <laughs> can you do any JP? I've never asked you this. I can do one, but it's very damaging. It's it's Harvey Firestein. Oh, Harvey Firestein. I can't do him. Harvey Firestein here. How you doing there, Aaron? I would love to be a part of the MCU at some point. Oh, wonderful. Speaking <laughs> of big stars, if you could write a vehicle, a star vehicle for any star from the golden age of Hollywood, who would it have been? A star vehicle for someone from the golden age of Hollywood. Wow, that's a, that's a really good question. I would like uh, the idea of like writing an original like film noir, you know, or detective story for like a Humphrey Bogart or someone like that would just be, you know, I mean, that would be amazing. Or writing something for Jimmy Stewart, you know, like, the, yeah, there's so many, so many greats from from that era that it would be wonderful to go back in time and be able to write for. Who, who would you say are the stars today, the, the movie stars, quote unquote? So got Tom Cruise. Definitely. Yeah. I, you know, I think Tom Cruise, Michael B. Jordan, Denzel's still doing it. Leonardo DiCaprio, who, yep. who, you know, like he doesn't put himself in franchise movies, but he's in hit after hit. We're in much more of a, of a, you know, it's about the character, not the, uh, not the star, but there still are a few, there's still a few left. I, I would argue it's more about the fan these days than it is even about the movies, but that's just me. I think that's right. <laughs> so it's something I rant about. Okay. Now, do you think the nerd media needs to calm the hell down with the clickbait headlines that spoil a film? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, Fucking earth. It's not just the nerd sites. It's like the trade sites, like Deadline Hollywood, yes. which is supposed to know better, spoiled <laughs> the new John Wick movie the day that it was out what? in the headline. What is wrong with these people? Seriously, what? stop ruining that for the rest of us, you assholes. Wikipedia needs a spoiler-free option. I think I told you about the simple English Wikipedia because uh -huh. you had asked about something. There's a whole simple English thing. So if there's any technical stuff you need to know on Wikipedia, look at the languages, simple English. They need spoiler-free. That's a great idea. That's a, that's a really good idea. 
I mean, things like uh, TV Tropes does a great job of that, of like all of the, you know, of like big spoilers for like the different things are in uh, blacked out and you have to scroll over it to yeah. uh, to get that. So it's an opt-in thing rather than an opt-out. Yeah, it's it's caring about people's experience, enjoying it. Even just on Wikipedia and even sometimes on IMDb in the cast list, if a character is pretending to be someone else, it's going to have both character names in it. So you're going to find out who a killer is or you're going to find out who a big reveal is purely by the cast list on freaking Wikipedia. Uh, but anyways, that if you could set up a VH1 Divas Live of Marvel characters, which four or five ladies from Marvel would be in your VH1 Divas Live? Or singing. Singing, yeah, I guess. It would be uh, Jane Foster. It would be uh, Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy. Would be uh, it would be the wasp from Ant Man and the Wasp, yeah. and um, it would be Black Widow. Yeah. Now, what was the naughtiest you were as a preteen? Not a teenager. I don't want to know stuff you can get in trouble for. So, the naughtiest you were as a preteen, as a as a little child. I wasn't naughty at all. I was I was a very obedient, rules following kid. I would say the weirdest I was as a preteen yeah. would be. I spent a year dressed up in a cat costume going to school in a cat costume and demanding that everyone address me as super cat. Oh my God, that is wonderful. Have you mentioned this before in any interview? No. Oh, brilliant. Oh, I love. So I, I still have like like papers from when I was in kindergarten where, you know, like the signature at the top of the worksheet was super cat. Oh my God. <laughs> Picks or it doesn't happen. We need to we'll wait till the episode drops. The world needs to see that. Holy moly. That is hilarious. Uh, okay. Now, what's one question that the media and or fans ask so often that you just want them to stop? Please stop asking me this. I've answered it a hundred times. Um, I don't get tired of questions very often. I guess it's, it's um, you know, like, don't ask me to reveal spoilers about something that hasn't come out yet. Yeah. That'd probably be my main one. Yeah, it's like, I can't tell you that. The Marvel laser would, uh, would incinerate. <laughs> oh, that's it. JP, have you got any? I am always curious. When you're writing a series, like, say, The Flash, and you're writing for season two and three, you wrote some episodes in there. How do you figure out the continuity? Do you go back and watch or read past episodes or do you just have a idea of how that works if it's a show that i'm not super familiar with i'll go back and watch like the kind of the, the important episodes and then you know i'll do what everyone else does and go on wikipedia and uh and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and get the plot summaries that way but you know the nice thing is that you know there are people on staff who their job is to track continuity and things like that and i'll go to them and say okay what do i need to know you know like what do i need to know what you know like the first episode that i wrote for the flash it's like he had just been seemingly incinerated the the, the episode before and it's like okay so he's in the speed force yes okay great <laughs> then you know like i got up to speed pretty quickly i'm always curious because he especially if you get to like season eight like you've got to figure out what has changed and yeah, because fans will point that out. Oh yeah, no, I remember. Uh, you know, like uh, Ashley and I were uh, were up for a job on uh, you know like Smallville season nine or something like that, and it was nine seasons in. It's that's a lot to catch up on. Yeah, the, the show bible 
is what it's called jp a lot of them have but i believe that the show bible is maybe good for a couple of years and then it gets thrown away and people forget it yeah it, it would be bigger than a cheesecake factory menu but the fans yeah. don't forget no the fans don't forget they're like oh that was not in his hand back then yep <laughs> exactly now last question what has inspired you the most or the most inspired you've been whilst traveling the most inspired i've been while traveling was probably when I was traveling with my wife to Europe for the first time. And I'm an ancient history fanatic. Mm -hmm. And she had been there before. She took me to see the Forum in Rome. And my expectation was that it was going to be a little like acre-sized park with a couple of pillars. I, I didn't realize that they like preserved almost the entire thing and that you could very easily visualize what it must have looked like 2000 years before. Like that was the closest experience I've ever had to time travel. And I, I just found it tremendously inspiring. Oh, wonderful. What did you write anything from that? Not specifically, but, but yeah. you know, like, like traveling, all, all of those things are in the back of your head. Yeah. You know, I'll give an, another example. I, I went to uh, Nepal to do some teaching at the film festival there and um you know like like seeing the himalayas and meeting nepali you know meeting nepali people and um i did end up writing a screenplay kind of based in uh, based in Kathmandu, a little independent horror movie that we're we're in the process of trying to get financed right now and that it was very much inspired by uh by the the people and the uh and the landscape yeah oh wonderful uh, anyways thank you so much the listeners at home, I've been annoying Zach for months and months. Finally months. happened. It finally happened. This show ain't famous. People aren't thinking about us, so I need to check in and say, is now good? Is it not good? If it's not, that's fine, you know, because we're keeping the show going anyway, so don't stress. It's all good. So thank you so much. It is an absolute honour. It's been a pleasure. Terminator, Sarah Connor Chronicles, all your work. Goodness gracious me, I'm, I'm so thrilled. So uh, quickly before you go, where can people find you on the social medias? You can find me at it's a very stupid pun. It's um, Muzak on Twitter, like the, uh, the elevator music, is, except it's M-U-S-E-Z-A-C-K. I'm also on Instagram under under that very same handle. So you can, although my Instagram is almost all just pictures of my dogs. That's fine. That's wonderful. <laughs> I used to be so jealous until a year and a bit ago, and then I got a puppy. Ah, excellent. Yeah, that, no, it's awesome. Oh, well, JP, where can people find you on the social medias? Easiest thing to do is just go to the website, uh, www.musicaltheaterradio.com. You can just click on, you know, our Twitter account or our Instagram account, our Facebook account, any of that stuff. You know, depends on where you're looking. It's slightly different because somebody stole MTR for Twitter. So I could not use it. It's MTR underscore tweets for twitter and for everything else it's just musical theater radio three w's or triple w triple w why don't you just say six u's i could or i could just say it in french www but <laughs> it's a bilingual country legally i have to use at least french twice a day <laughs> yeah australia is a bilingual country too we speak english and illiterate <laughs> Alrighty, that's it from us for this week. A huge thank you to Zach for joining us and, of course, to JP for stepping in at the last minute. Thank you so much. It's funny because the listeners at home, I call him JP. Obviously, his name is John Paul. Uh, but besides that, I call him JP because that is Jurassic Park. And it just so happens that he 
happened to be on the episode where we had Zach Stenz, who created Camp Cretaceous. So isn't it funny how life works? I got a total giggle out of that. I'm sure it frustrated JP because he's like, well, fucking shut up with the Jurassic Park shit by now. Anyways, you can catch us on Twitter at Thrash and Treasure, on Instagram at Thrash and Treasure Podcast. We're on YouTube and all the stuff, Facebook, buy the Toniston Tales, read the Toniston Tales. You can leave a review if you like, leave a review for this podcast whatever amount of stars you feel we are worth. Uh, you can also find our other host, Matt the Quizmaster, on his podcast, The Story Chunder, as well as our podcast, Get Popped on Culture. If you're in the Utah area, you can catch Mr. J Wags, who will be playing Willy Wonka coming up at the Tuakan Amphitheatre. He will also be in Tarzan and Hunchback of Notre Dame. However, he's playing Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. So make sure you grab tickets to that because he really is an amazing performer. Anyways, we're going to take a couple of weeks off because like I said a few episodes ago, I was going to do about four or five episodes, maybe six, and then take a break. I ended up doing ten, so I'm really tired and I'm going to go to bed. Anyways, thanks for listening. Stay tuned after the episode for a sneak peek of next week's episode of And the EGOT Goes To by Spencer and his panel of experts. You be good to each other and take care and we shall see you next time. Such a pleasure. We'll talk another time. Take care. Coming up next week on the Bloop Network. Best play. I have the nominees as Leopoldstadt, Life of Pi, Fat Ham, Prima Facie, and The Cost of Living. I have Fat Ham, A Christmas Carol, Ain't No Mo, Pictures from Home, and Life of Pi. And the first half of that category is purely because they are black cast. That's the only reason. I don't care if they're good or bad. But that is the only reason they're there. And if you don't like it, you can fight me. <laughs> I think whether or not Life of Pi ends up in best play is the most interesting conversation to have. Because I think there's a chance that it doesn't. Because I think, and because I think yeah. like, and I really like Life of Pi. I liked the story. I liked the book. A lot of people do not. And I think, and maybe I'm just completely blinded by the scenic design of it all. But I don't have it in my best play because I think ultimately, like, they're going to be like, it got scenic. It doesn't need. Wow. That would be huge. And I haven't even seen this show yet. I feel like that would be a huge snub if it doesn't get best play. A nominee. Yeah, I don't know. I I have a, I have a, I mean, I all, everyone I know that's seen it outside of like me and two other people have been like, oh, it's really pretty, but I don't like the story. Or like, I didn't like the book or like, I thought it was written for children. And I was just shocked because I, when I saw it in London, it was like one of the best things I've ever seen. And then people have just been so negative about it, but I don't know how the nominators feel about it. I didn't even read the reviews, so I actually don't even know what the reviews said, but positive. Okay. They're positive. Yeah. yeah they're pretty positive. Um, Cause in my opinion, Leopoldstadt, Life of Pi and Fat Ham yeah. are the shoe-ins. And then the last two can go to whatever. Um, I had Thanksgiving play Goodnight Oscar, but I could also see it being uh, Prima Facie, especially yeah. with the Olivier win. Um, and how late it's coming in the season and how good she is. And it's just a good play.
I will also say about Goodnight Oscar, the play itself, when I saw it, needed a lot of work. Probably the most work I've ever seen needed from. You saw first. You saw first preview. I, I did see first preview. Oh, because oh, I'm saying because like everybody I've talked to who saw it said it was like one of the best things they've ever seen. Which I I'm like in Chicago or or invited dress. In Chicago and then also in both. Yeah, because when I saw it, it needed so much work, but the performances were so incredible. So I'm excited to get to see it again because I really yeah. hope they did.